When, um, when we were at church in Halesworth years ago, we had a, a guy in the church who was a kind of a small holder. And you'd come to church on a Sunday morning um, to give your offering of worship to the Lord, and you'd go home with a bag of parsnips because um, Ted would bring his excess. Uh, and we've brought our excess this morning. There's loads of really gorgeous eating apples in reception. If you don't take them at home, all the weight I've lost in the last year will be put on by eating eating apples. So take them with you. It's got nothing to do with the sermon. And that was kind of amazing. The, the words that people brought earlier, um, Dave and Cherie and someone else, can't remember, it just kind of preached the sermon this morning. So that was kind of amazing, really. Um, so we're continuing our series looking at, at Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, with its, its focus on what the heart of Jesus is towards us. But this week in the, in the chapter that we're in, it kind of changes tack and, and asks us to consider what the Father's heart towards us is. Is the Father's heart towards us any different in character from being gentle and lowly? in the way that Jesus is. So that's kind of what we're looking at, at this morning. Uh, hence, hence my comment about the worship Julian led us in and, and words people have brought. So our text is, um, is really simple this morning. It's one verse, or even really half a verse, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. And the verse reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, just reading that should really bring cheer to our hearts. Just that half a verse up there, reading it and thinking, that's God towards me, should cheer your hearts. But I want to turn our attention... Um, to some of the moral attributes of God this morning. And if it's too early in the morning to think about what moral attributes means, um, we're talking about the qualities of God's heart towards us. I promise, I promise I won't talk for more than 20 minutes. You can put a stopwatch on me if you want and start throwing things. There's loads of apples in the foyer you can throw at me. I want to start by just dwelling for a few moments on the goodness of God. God is the final standard of what is good this morning, just like always. You see, we're not free to decide ourselves what's worthy of approval or disapproval. What's good and bad. It's not our choice. It's not the prevailing weight of trends in society. And what's acceptable to the majority that determines what's good. Goodness does not evolve as we become more sophisticated. Goodness is not a movable feast. Oh, some people will be offended by that. It challenges the kind of cancel culture where people can be ostracised for having views or expressing views that are somehow outdated as society has moved on from that. Goodness this morning, you need to know, is not relative. God is the final standard of what is good. In Luke 18, it says, no one is good 
Did you know that? Not one of us is good. However hard we try, however frantic our activity is, none of us is good. But the verse says, sorry, I've digressed. No one is good but God alone. God is himself good and therefore he is the ultimate standard of what is good. Two questions. So what is good? Well, the answer is simple. Good is what God approves of. The philosophers amongst us might then ask, why is what God approves good? Well, it's it's equally simple, isn't it? It's because he approves it. There is no higher standard of goodness than the character of God. The psalmist connects the character of God with his actions when he says you are good and you do good teach me your statutes so God is the source of all good in the world in James 1 it says every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's goodness to us is unchanging. It's truth in our lives that doesn't vary or develop in a world that seems to change its mind every five minutes about everything. We know God only does good things for his children, because in Romans 8 it says... Kind of, we know most of these verses, but it's so good to be reminded of them. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all good things? Jesus was sent by the Father to die on the cross in your place. Why won't he give you all good things? He lavishes his goodness on us day after day. So very briefly, having considered that God is good towards us, let's just consider one of those situations where where we can say, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, because it's kind of quite complicated sometimes, as we consider more about the Father's moral attributes towards us. So on the one hand, God's holiness means that he separates himself from sin and he is completely dedicated to his own honour. The idea of holiness is kind of this mash up of, um, of seeking separation from what's evil and devotion to God's glory. In the Old Testament, the, um, the tabernacle was a place to separate from the evil and the sin of the world. And the first room in it was called the holy place. It was dedicated to God's service. But then God commanded that there'd be a veil, a curtain. And in Exodus 26, it says, And the veil shall separate you from the holy place. Sorry, and the veil shall, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy the most holy place was where the ark of the covenant was kept 
was the most separated place from evil and sin. It was the most dedicated to God's service. The place where God dwelt was holy. It says in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? We're not holy enough, in other words. And it says in Psalm 71, God is called Holy One of Israel. He's holy. So on the same hand as God being holy, separate from sin, he's also just and righteous. He always acts in accordance with what's right. And he is the final authority of what's right. Moses says, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness, without iniquity. Just and right is he, in Deuteronomy 32. God also speaks and commands what's right. It says in Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I don't normally like big, long quotes, but we're going to get one this morning um, from John Piper. And if you only listen to one thing this morning, listen to this because it's brilliant. It's not very long. When God does not punish sin, it seems to indicate that he's unrighteous. Unless some other means of of punishing sin can be seen. This is why Paul says that when God sent Christ as a sacrifice to bear the punishment for sin, it was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3. When Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, it showed that God was truly righteous because he did give appropriate punishment to sin, even though he did forgive his people their sins. Our sin required a punishment that God couldn't just sweep under the carpet, hide away from, kind of pretend to ignore. It required Jesus to die on the cross in our place. And we'll be thinking about that a bit more as we break bread um, when I've finished. Remember that verse that we just looked at. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and right is he. So so the God that we worship is good. And on the one hand, the Father is holy and he's just and he's righteous. But be grateful. Be very, very, very grateful this morning. That on the other hand, our Father is loving and gracious and merciful. And that his grace and mercy extend to us even beyond his perfect justice and righteousness. So God in his love gives himself 
to others to bring blessing and good for them, for us. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It says in 1 John. And Paul writes in in Romans 8, God shows his love for us, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It should be a great cause of joy in our lives to know the purpose of our Father is to bring us great joy, true happiness. And it's one of the most amazing facts in the Bible. That on the one hand, God's love involves him giving himself to us to make us happy. So that we in return can give of ourselves and bring joy to God's heart. God's mercy is about his goodness to those in misery and distress. When Paul speaks of the fact that God comforts us in affliction, he calls God what our key text is this morning, the father of mercies and the God of comfort. David says, I am in great distress. Distress. Let's fall into the hands of the Lord who is great in mercy. His grace is all about his perfect goodness to us in a measure that's pressed down and overflowing to those of us who deserve only punishment. So the goodness of God in this immeasurable measure, you know what I mean, is poured out on us despite the fact that we don't deserve it at all the undeserved goodness of God his grace is freely given we can't add to what God freely gives us we can't aid it or contribute to it one jot one iota one bit it's a free gift we don't deserve it salvation by grace is the opposite of salvation by our own effort, our own endeavour, working ourselves up to rush around like lunatics, trying to be good and do good. It's a free gift. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is Christ Jesus. Dwelling on these things, these attributes of God, should bring great cheer to our hearts. It should build us up, edify us. When I was typing these notes up on Thursday, uh, the truth is I was in a probably a bit of a grump. Um, and actually just dwelling for a couple of hours on these truths. There's no application in this this morning. I'll get told off by, by all of the elders. That, you know, Where was the application? How do people apply this sermon to their lives? Well, this is the one bit, isn't it, really? When I was dwelling on these things, my heart changed. I turned the computer off a different person because I dwelt on the goodness of God towards me. His grace and his mercy. Not because he sweeps my sin under the carpet. 
But because he couldn't do that, he had to send Jesus. For me, in my, I was, I wasn't in tears, but my heart was overwhelmed with joy. That's the application this morning. In conclusion, I just want to say a bit more about, um, about our key text and, uh, and, and what Dane Orton says. So, so the work of Jesus and specifically his substitutionary death on the cross, taking our place and our punishment and his resurrection three days later satisfies the Father's righteous wrath against the horror of our rebellion and our sin against him. The Father's wrath was propitiated. I can't say that word. I'm very sorry. Uh, It was turned away from us. The Father's wrath was turned away from us by Jesus taking our place and our punishment on the cross. The truth is the Father thinks about us in exactly the same way as the Son does. So how is it that the Father's wrath had to be satisfied, needed to be satisfied? And how is it that the Son was the one who stood in our place to satisfy the Father's wrath? Well, the Father's wrath had to be swept aside so as helpless sinners we could be brought back into the favour of God. The Father was the one who needed to be placated. But his heart was as one with the Son in doing that. The Father didn't need any more persuading than the Son did. In fact, just the opposite. The Father ordained the method of our redemption, of Jesus taking the punishment, of Jesus taking our place, which reflects the same heart of love that the Son showed us in his sacrificial death in our place. The Father couldn't just sweep our rebellion under the carpet and forget it. That would not be just or righteous. The Father is just and righteous. But what flows from his heart, from his deepest being, is mercy to us. He is the Father of mercies. James tells us that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's the one who multiplies compassionate mercies to his needful, wayward, fallen people who wander away from him. The label Father of Mercies is the way the Bible takes us deep into who the Father is. It's plain wrong to think that the Father is the one that judges us and the Son is the one that shows us love. Nonsense. The heart of each member of the Trinity is exactly the same to us. We worship one God with one heart. The heart of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is a heart of redeeming love, not a heart of compromising justice. The Trinune God is three in one. A fountain of endless mercy to us in our lives. And that mercy extending even beyond his righteousness and justice to meet us in our failure. The Father's tender care for us envelops us. He wraps his arms around us as he endlessly pursues us with goodness and gentleness. 
So who is God our Father? Well, well, simply that. He's our Father. The Father who every human father is a mere shadow of. So Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God, it tells us in 2 Corinthians. In him, we've seen heaven's eternal heart walking on two legs amongst us. But the heart of the Father is identical to us. It's gentle and it's lowly. As we consider the Father's heart for us, just remember, he's the Father of mercies. And his tenderness towards us outstrips even what we are capable of thinking of ourselves. The heart of Christ is gentle and lowly. And that is a perfect picture of who the Father is towards us as well. Um, Jesus tells us in John 16, the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. Shall we, shall we stand and pray? Um, yeah, Father God, I do pray for each of us now that however much or little of that we have absorbed, we absorb the fact that you're a good good God and that you love us and that you're for each one of us without exception yeah thank you that you're good thank you that you're the perfect father that you lavish your goodness on us day after day that you love each one of us Thank you that you're a holy, just and righteous God without sin and you always do what's right. Thank you that you love us so perfectly. That you pour your undeserved goodness on us. Thank you that you're merciful to us. Thank you that your grace and mercy extend even beyond your justice and righteousness to wrap your arms around us. Thank you that you're the father of mercies. Thank you that you are for us, not against us. That you're with us, that you love us, that you provide for us, that you care for us. We pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon us, breathe upon us now, breath of God, and reveal these truths to our heart in a deeper way. Warm our hearts to you right now, I pray. I pray that as we dwell on the truth of who you are and how much you love us, our hearts would be awakened and warmed. Cause us to leave this place more in love with you because our hearts have been turned towards these truths. Come upon us now. Fall upon us, breath of God, I pray. Cause us more and more to understand the depth of your goodness towards us. And your love for us that Jesus would have been sent by the Father to take our punishment. To die the most horrific death imaginable in his innocence in our place. Thank you, Lord. Bless your name, Jesus.